Welcome to the studio with Christoph Milechuk. I am recording this on Halloween night. I'm actually recording this directly after receiving a knock at my door. It was two kids and their mother, and the kids said trick or treat. Now this put me in a very challenging situation because now that I live in an apartment building, hardly an apartment, it's a historic building. I live on the third floor. I have a third floor flat in this historic building. Living here, I did not anticipate receiving trick or treaters. Now, should I have exercised some foresight and realized, hmm, there are some kids who live on the second floor of this building, kids trick or treat, maybe they'll knock on my door. Yes, I should have realized this, but I didn't. So now I'm in a bind. I have two young kids and their mother at my door, and I am candyless, and they're asking me for candy. So I resourcefully say, I have no treats, but I can give you a tip. Not a trick, but a tip. I told the kids, invest your money when you're young. Now, the mother liked this. She made a comment to the kids who didn't understand what I said because they're too young. I don't think they know what investing means. She said, well, you can give your tooth fairy money to your dad and he can buy crypto with it. Oh, now this piqued my interest because me, I'm big into blockchain technology. I am very bullish on crypto. I'm going to have another episode about crypto, but for the time being, all that needs to be known is that I am heavy into crypto, both from a financial and a philosophical perspective. So the mother says jokingly to her children that you could invest your tooth fairy money in crypto. And I say, yes, that's a good idea. So then the mother's like, oh, you, you actually resonated with that remark. And now I start chopping it up with the mother. And we're talking about crypto. I'm telling her about the difference between proof of work and proof of stake and whether it makes sense to be mining Bitcoin right now. Then the father comes up and the, the conversation kind of ends. Really nice family. I didn't give the kids any candy, but hopefully they are going to be early investors in the crypto sphere. The first people in their grade, second grade, maybe third grade, to invest in crypto. Now, although I intend to make zero excuse for my lack of preparation in having Halloween candy, what I will say is that I've been very busy over the past week, I've been traveling domestically. I was in New York for four days, then in Arizona for four days. New York for pleasure, Arizona for work. And I just recently returned to Boulder, Colorado. Now, a couple weeks before embarking on this travel, this journey, this adventure, I was walking to Ozo Coffee, my favorite coffee shop in Boulder, I get free drinks there all the time. Whenever Niall the barista sees me coming in, he gives me a free cappuccino. It's a tremendous accord, a tremendous relationship. I talk to him. We have a nice rapport. He talks to me. We enjoy each other's conversation. And he gives me free drinks. It's a win-win. A win-win. I'm returning from Ozo Coffee with my free cappuccino in hand, and I'm passing by a yard sale in a nice part of town. I'm not too interested in yard sales. I don't want to acquire too many goods. In fact, I'd like to get rid of some goods. 
However, one thing catches my eye, and it's a painting. It's a nice painting. It's almost an out-of-place painting. I didn't expect to see something like this at a unadvertised yard sale on the side of the road. The painting was depicting this beautiful Parisian street scene. The Arc de Triomphe is in the background. A couple is walking in the foreground. You can see a flower salesman. You can see horses. Very nice palette, thick brush strokes, artfully done. It's a piece of art. More than just a painting, it's art. The woman who's hosting the yard sale comes up to me. She says, are you interested in this painting? I said, yes, what's it going for? She says, let me ask my husband. We're watching the game. It's a Sunday. I say, oh, well, what, what game are you watching? She looks at me quizzically and says, well, the football game. Apparently, Americans watch football on Sundays. She comes back to me. She says, $25. I say, $25? Yes, please. I'll take it immediately. I bought the painting. I returned 10 minutes later with my car. I picked up the painting, went to my house, brought it upstairs. There's a certificate of authenticity, a little sticker on the back showing that it was not a counterfeit, that it was sold by a reputable art studio. It has a serial number associated with it. The artist's name is John Hansen. I looked him up online. I can't find any information about him, but I can see that he has a couple pieces of art for sale on eBay. And here's the crazy thing. I estimate, based on the art that is on sale on eBay, that this piece that I acquired for only $25, oh my goodness, get this, I could turn it around, I could flip it for between $100 and $500. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that a great investment? I am an art merchant. I'm buying art that has value, this could be worth $100, at least. I only bought it for $25. This is some, some big baller moves right now. Jokes aside, I felt very savvy after buying this painting. I felt, I felt a sensation of excitement because I was embarking upon a new venture. The venture of being an art merchant. I am an art merchant. Now look, I'm not big into labels. I apply very few labels to myself. To name a few, engineer. I suffered for five years to become an engineer. It's my current day job. That's a label that I would assign to myself. I'm a poet, of course. You may not know this, but The Studio with Christoph Malachuk, The Studio is a poem that I wrote. I named this podcast after a poem that I wrote. What else am I? I'm an engineer. I'm a poet. I used to strongly self-identify as being an athlete, but that has shifted. I now think of myself as being a yogi. I used to do crazy workouts, insane workouts. Then at the beginning of 2021, I, I pivoted all of my high-intensity interval training, calisthenic-based workouts, I stopped doing all of that and started doing only yoga. Now, I had been doing yoga for some time, maybe two days a week, and the rest were these very, very intense workouts. My yoga, very strong practices, but, but it's not the same as a high-intensity interval training where you're 
we are pushing ourselves to the brink of collapse. And I transitioned because doing this, these, these calisthenic workouts, these hit workouts, it was building my ego. I was watching a Mike Tyson clip and the clip Mike Tyson said, I am the greatest fighter since the conception of God. I was doing a workout after watching this clip. I finished my last rep of whatever I was doing. Then I continued doing more reps. And after every rep, I yelled, I screamed at the top of my lungs. I am the greatest fighter since the conception of God. And I would do other types of workouts. And I would think no one else is doing this. 99.9% .9 of people cannot even fathom doing this. Whether or not that's true, it's what I believed. I was doing insane feats mentally, most of it mentally. And all of this was building my ego. It was turning me into this monster. That's the opposite of what I want to do. I want to kill my ego. I want to be ego less. These workouts were counterproductive. They were going against what a much larger, more important goal is. Ego lessness, realizing that the self doesn't exist. That's the path to liberation. That's the path to enlightenment. And yoga destroys the ego. Yoga puts you at the border of effort and ease. Yoga puts you into a state of perfect equanimity. Yoga puts you into a state of simply being, not doing, not suffering, just being. So that's why I no longer consider myself to be an athlete. For me, athlete equals ego. I think of myself as being a yogi. Yogi equals egolessness equals path to liberation. So I'm an engineer, a poet, a yogi. I'm a man. And I'm also a romantic. I'm a romantic guy with a romantic vision of the world. I'm romantic in my relationships. I'm romantic in my outlook. I'm romantic in my actions. So I think that's about five labels. I don't think I would really toss on any more. An engineer, a poet, a yogi, a romantic, and a man. I'm not a big fan of labels, and I'd be very pleased to actually let go of all of these labels that I have just described to myself. From a Buddhist perspective, labels are negative because labels are concepts, and concepts are imperfect ways of looking at the world. Because when you look at something through the lens of a concept, you're not seeing what is actually there. You shouldn't look at a tree and recognize it as a tree, but rather you should look at a tree and recognize its tree-ness. Rather, you recognize what it is, what its true properties are, rather than observing the tree through the lens of it being a tree. That's pretty Buddhist. A non-Buddhist reason that I am not so big on labels is because labels are inherently tribal and tribalism is inherently negative. Especially when tribalism comes to the level of group identity, tribal identity, trumping individual identity, that gets to a very dangerous space. And I think we're entering into that space quite heavily in terms of politics right now. This is inside of a single country. 
you have different political factions where people are more identified with that faction than their own sense of identity as an individual. We already see this type of tribalism on the level of nations. People are very proud of their country. I mean, just look at the World Cup for football, especially Europeans. They get so invested in their country winning. It's, it's the identity of the group is totally eclipsing the identity as an individual. I was recently talking to some colleagues. One of them mentioned some sort of prowess that Canada had in an engineering discipline, and I felt a sense of pride. I wanted to put my fist in the air. I want to be, mm-hmm, yeah, they can't Canada doing well. And then I realized, mm, it's quite negative that I have this automatic reaction to hearing Canada. I felt this sense of pride, which is a sin. I felt this sense of pride upon hearing that Canada had accomplished something. That's something that I would like to be able to let go of. Now, we can get really nitty-gritty into the details and see that there are definitely benefits to tribalism in some, in some circumstances, and there are benefits to labels, absolutely. All I'm trying to say is that I'm not big into labels, but upon the purchase of this painting at the yard sale, this meant that I now strongly ascribed a new label to myself. Not only am I an engineer, a poet, a yogi, a romantic, and a man, but I am also an art merchant. I was trying to think of who are prominent art merchants throughout history. Who, who can I jokingly somewhat identify myself with? And then I stumbled across the Medici family, a family of Italian bankers, a family of Italian rulers, one of the most powerful families in history. Now, I didn't know much about them, but I dug deep. A family of art merchants, patrons of art and science and philosophy. I'm changing my name. This is no longer the studio with Christoph Malachuk. This is the studio with Christoph Medici. A quick bit of history. The Medici Bank was founded in 1397 by Giovanni di Bici de Medici. His son, Cosmo de Medici, really pushed this bank forward, really made it a powerhouse, a dominant bank in the Roman Empire. In the 15th century, under the watch of Cosmo de' Medici, the Medici family became the richest family in the world. The Medici bank became the bank to the Pope. The Pope has a decent amount of power now. We probably see that a bit less being in North America. You'd see it a bit more being in some places in Europe. In Poland, I think the, the Pope, the Catholic Church, has a lot of power, has a lot of impact. In various places throughout Europe has a lot of power, a lot of impact, a bit less in, in the North American West. But to become the banker to the Pope, the bank of the Pope, the bank of God, in the 15th century, oh, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of power. The Medici reign, this dynasty, this center of power, which started in Florence, Italy, started in the 15th century and went straight through to the 17th century. This is a 200 plus year dynasty. 
the Medici family was the richest family in the world. Not only were they bankers who became leaders of Florence and then expanded the power center of Florence to being the power center of Tuscany, Florence being a city, they turned the center of power of the city to the center of the power of this fairly large province, expanded the power of Florence. They became leaders of Florence for hundreds of years. Not only were they these politicians, these strategic maneuverers in terms of land acquisition and growing power, they were also patrons of the arts, patrons of science, patrons of philosophy. So back in, in these days, in the 15th century, artists didn't paint works to then sell to an unknown interested party. Artists created works when they were commissioned to paint works. So they'd have to be asked to, please make a painting of me. Please build this building for this purpose. They had to be commissioned. They had to have patrons. So the Medici had an eye for talent and they commissioned, they were patrons of many famous artists, some of the artists that we see as being the greatest artists to have ever lived. They were patrons of Botticelli. Have you heard of The Birth of Venus? If you haven't, look it up. I'm sure you've seen it. One of the most powerful, famous paintings of the Italian Renaissance, painted by Botticelli. Botticelli was able to have money to live, to grow his craft, as a result of the patronage of the Medicis. You can thank the Medicis for his career to some extent. But not only Botticelli, I mean, a lot of people haven't heard of Botticelli. Everyone's heard of Leonardo da Vinci. Everyone's heard of Michelangelo. The Medicis, also patrons of these artists. You don't have these full blossoming careers of these artists without the Medici family. The Medici family also encouraged their friends to be patrons of the artists that they liked. So even if they weren't commissioned directly by the Medici family, the Medicis had influence in these artists getting work and then creating these works of art that we now see as being some of the greatest of all time. Let me go on. I said Leo da Vinci, Michelangelo, also Raphael and Donatello. Now, if you were a child and you watched certain TV stations, you would have encountered the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. What were their names? Oh, Leonardo, Michelangelo, Raphael, Donatello. Somehow, a 15th century Italian banking family is not as disconnected from a 1980s American comic later turned into movies and a TV show, they're not as disconnected as one might think. This Italian banking family supported were patrons were partially responsible for the career success and everlasting impact of the namesakes of these four comic book heroes. Do you think the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles would have had the same impact? if their names weren't Leonardo, Michelangelo, Donatello, Raphael? Do you think people would have resonated with them if their names were Ralph, George, Jesse, and Curtis? I don't think so. It's that bit of Italian flair, that knowledge that they're big artists from the past, but why are they big artists from the past? In part due to the Medici family. That's an immense legacy. 
but those are artists. There are also some, some scientists, in particular Galileo. Galileo was a personal teacher, a private tutor to the Medici family. He tutored multiple generations of Medici children, and he discovered four of the moons of Jupiter and named the four moons after different Medici children. The names of these moons have since been changed. They are no longer named after the Medici children, but that just shows that they, they were supporting the leading scientists of the age and also for some time protected Galileo against prosecution. You might also be familiar with Machiavelli. He wrote The Prince. He was actually an enemy of the Medici, but the Medici were so powerful, they pushed him into exile, and Machiavelli, who detested the Medici, who pushed him into exile, he dedicated The Prince, his most famous book, a book which is still read by world leaders today, he dedicated it to the Medici family. That's their power. But it goes on. Remember how the Medici bank was the bank to the Pope? Four popes subsequently were from the Medici family. The Medici family bought Catholicism. They bought Roman Catholicism in its entirety to the point where four Medicis became popes. That is an incredible amount of power to buy a religion. Catholicism has been corrupt for centuries upon centuries. Here's one nice example. Okay, so you have some popes. You have them being the patrons, the supporters of some of the greatest Italian artists of all time. You have them expand the Florentine Empire to become the Tuscan Empire. They supported Galileo. So that's all within Italy, prominent Italians. Well, check this. Catherine de' Medici was married to King Henry II of France. And this marriage took place because Pope Clement VII... Pope Clement VII, also known as Giulio de' Medici, married Catherine de' Medici to the King of France. So now the Queen of France is a Medici. This is during the 1550s. She's the mother of the subsequent three kings of France. She has a hand in what the French Empire is doing, the French Republic. That's, in, again, in the 1550s, she was the queen, and then she controlled, had a lot of power over her sons who ruled for the next several years, decades. But again, in 1600, Mary de' Medici, another Medici, becomes queen of France again. She marries the king. So you have the Medicis who control all of Roman Catholicism, who are deep in the French Republic, who have control of one of the largest power centers of Italy at the time, Tuscany and Florence, and were the richest family in the world. That is a dynasty. Those are some art merchants. That is why I am now Christophe Medici. The dynasty continues. The dynasty fell apart in the 17th century, totally collapsed in the 18th century. Well, it's revived in the 21st century. The Medicis are alive and well. The Medicis are back with Christophe Medici. And you think of families now, you think, ah, oh, there are 
dynasty-type politics happening in Canada and the United States. I mean, you have Justin Trudeau prime minister and his father, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, was prime minister. I don't think anyone really thinks that the Trudeau family has a particularly large amount of power. There just happened to be this nice link where people supported the son because they liked the father and there was no other good candidate for uh, leader of the Liberal Party. Then you look to the states and you see, ah, well, you know, you had the Bush crime family, two presidents, and then Jeb Bush running to be a third president. So you have the Bush crime family. That's a pretty powerful family, deep rooted into the government, a lot of history there. Then you have the Clinton crime family, where you had Bill Clinton president, Hillary Clinton vice president, and then almost became president herself. So you have the Clinton crime family, the Bush crime family, they're nothing. You look at the Medicis, these modern-day American powerhouses, allegedly powerhouses, they are dirt on the foot of Cosimo de' Medici. Speaking of world centers of financial power, we were just talking about Tuscany, a former world center of financial power. What's a current center of financial power. Well, where's Wall Street? It's New York City. And I recently visited New York City. I was there for a whirlwind four-day trip. I was traveling with my dear Polish friend, Kasper Koshikowski, and we were visiting our dear Indian friend, Lena Murdeshwar. Four days and three nights, not much time. It was short, but boy, was it sweet. The first night, we get back to the hotel late. Bars are open until 4 a.m. Now that's a city. That's what I like. I like the European style. I don't like when things close at 2 in the morning. That's when things are just getting interesting. Now 4 a.m. is also maybe a bit earlier than it could be. But it's not bad. It's not bad for North America. In fact, for North America, it's pretty impressive. So the first night we we're out at the bars, we get home late. When I say home, I mean we're staying at a hotel. Casper and I are sharing a hotel room. We watch Fox News for a bit, then we go to bed. We wake up at noon. The second night, we get back even later. We watch a bit of Fox News, go to bed at 4.30. Then we wake up at noon the next day, and for the final night, we get back late, watch a bit of Fox News, and go to bed at 5 in the morning. We sucked every last succulent drop out of the nightlife. We capitalized on the city. We lived in the city. We made it our own city. What a fun time we had. New York is a city that has it all. It has culture, it has art, it has food, it has nightlife, it has serenity of the park, and it has the busyness of Grand Central Station. The transit system, phenomenal. You would take the subway everywhere. It felt clean, it felt safe, it was fast, it was efficient, it was cheap. What more could you ask from a transit system? New York as a city didn't feel crowded. It didn't feel too dense. I mean, yes, sometimes Friday, 5 p.m., streets packed full of people leaving from work, going to their homes, going to restaurants. 
but it never felt claustrophobic. Are the buildings enormous? Oh my goodness, yes. The cityscape is awe-inspiring, jaw-dropping. You, you see something, you see a city, you think it has a nice cityscape. Look at New York and compare. It's not the same. New York is a real city. If anything, New York so strikingly made me realize how garbage of a city San Francisco is. Does San Francisco have some things going for it? Yes, it does. But it's a city in decline. San Francisco was a tremendous place to live between 1950 and 2005. In episode three, the end of the podcast, I went on a little bit of a rant. I spit a little bit of vitriol at the city of San Francisco and my distaste for it and its people. And New York really opened my eyes. It really opened my eyes that when I went on this fairly aggressive rant on San Francisco, being in New York made me realize that everything I said was true and I should have gone harder at San Francisco. How does New York, a city with 10 times the population, feel 10 times safer, have seemingly much less homelessness per capita, have a tremendously functional transit system that itself feels safe and clean, and smell 10 times better. If you have any bit of sense of smell, walking around in San Francisco, highly unpleasant. San Francisco is one of the only cities in the world where when you catch COVID, you hope you get long COVID so that you can't smell for the next few months. Because nothing there smells good. New York smells fine. Now, is the air as fresh and clean as the wonderful, dry, crisp mountain air of Boulder, Colorado? No, not quite. I mean, you can smell maybe a little bit of car exhaust from time to time. But it smells fine. It smells nondescript. And it feels safe. New York, you see older women, frail, walking by themselves at night. They don't have fear. They don't have a reason to feel fear. I don't like walking in half the places in San Francisco by myself at night, and I'm a six foot three, 200 pound imposing male. Man, New York is a city. So when I was in New York, I got my first glimpse into what an East Coast American city is, and it was enlightening. I reached an epiphany as to the difference between West Coast mentality and East Coast mentality. Some people say, oh, you know, I'm more a fan of the West Coast or I'm more of an East Coast person. I now understand what that means. So let's first look at what characterizes the East and West Coast. East Coast, you have old money. The East Coast has been a prominent power center for over a century. That's where you have Wall Street, all the banks. That's where you have DC, the government. That's where you have MIT, that's where you have Harvard, that's where you have NYU, Boston University, a whole bunch of other prominent academic institutions. That's the old money. The money, the power, it lies in government and it lies in financial institution and a small bit in some academic institutions. If you look at the West Coast, you have new money. You have... Hollywood in Los Angeles, you have Silicon Valley in the San Francisco area, the Bay Area, 
You have Seattle as its own little hub that has Amazon, a bunch of other tech companies, primarily Amazon dominated. So these are all new power centers. It's new money. These were not areas that dictated culture a hundred years ago. The people on the West coast have a different mentality than people on the East coast and how they try to make their cities great. In the West coast, people try to make the city that they live in great by caring a lot about what others do. If you're doing something that they think is great, has high morality, aligns with their values, they'll, they'll compliment you. And if you're doing the opposite, they will let you know, potentially condescend to you. And this is a way of almost self police, not self policing, policing one's community in order to create the best city possible. In New York and the East coast, people try to make the best city possible by not giving a damn about what anyone else does as long as it doesn't affect them. Let me give you an example. San Francisco, a man is walking down a street wearing a dress. People as the man walks by will say, Oh my God, you're so brave. You're so beautiful. You look great. The same man in the same dress walks down a New York city street. No one says anything to him. Nothing bad, nothing good. People mind their own business in New York on the East coast, on the West coast, people stick their noses into others' business, different mentalities as to how to create the best community possible. And having experienced both, it is abundantly clear to me that things work way better when people mind their own business, stay in their lane. They worry about themselves. They worry about feeding their family. They don't care too much about your level of morality as long as it doesn't affect them. In New York, people don't care so much about morality. They care about being to do what they want with their life. Of course, they don't care about morality because people are operating within these gatekeeping institutions that have been around for a long time. You think that everyone has a fair shot of getting deep into one of the wall street companies. Everyone has a fair shot of becoming CEO of JP Morgan chase bank of getting deep within Wells Fargo of getting a, a position of power at the New York stock exchange. Not really. There's a lot of generational wealth and people are not caring so much about morality. They're caring about their bottom line. But if you get up in someone's business or in the business of the New York people, they're going to solve the issue. In New York, people care about actual problems, not moral dilemmas. West coast, a bit different, new money. What does that mean? It means people coming from new industries, people who are creating things from scratch and who are leaving universities, uh, more recently and leaving universities that have different mentalities. So now very common in post-secondary education, you're taught to make the world a better place to identify and fight discrimination. Silence is violence. And you take this hopeful mentality and you try to apply it to the city in which you're living. And well, you're making a lot of money with your great startup because yes, there is disruption of an industry and there is certainly a lot of negative gatekeeping that exists in the East coast, old money. But your attempts to disrupt should maybe stay a bit more confined to your job and industry. And instead it's seeping out into the city with best intentions, 
but with very poor results. What does it result in? It results in far more homelessness because you can't even acknowledge that homelessness is a problem because simply by saying we have a homelessness problem, you are demonizing people who are homeless. So if you can't acknowledge that something is a problem or if there's a problem with crime on the streets and well, the crime is coming from certain neighborhoods, but those neighborhoods uh, are populated with a certain marginalized group, well, then you can't really blame the group for that, again, because there's this morality policing, and it's a bit of a twisted morality, but to summarize it, marginalized people cannot be criticized for anything because it's the fault of the larger system, the patriarchal tyranny in which people exist in present-day United States. So you can't tackle the actual problems, but you can definitely tackle the moral dilemmas. In New York, there are a lot of homeless people, but they're not a problem. Because when homeless people act funky, they're identified as a problem and something's done about it. It's flipped. In New York, in the East Coast, no one cares about morality, everyone cares about actual problems. On the West Coast, everyone cares about morality, and as a result, no one is able to address the actual problems. So I'm a bit more of an East Coast person myself. And being more of an East Coast person, that's exactly why I intend to carry down the wealth, the generational wealth of my family, the Medicis. So thank you for listening to The Studio with Christophe Medici. It's great to be back. Please tell your friends about this. Give it a rating. Give it a review. Tell your friends who live in different places in whichever country you live in. Tell, tell your friends who live in different places in the world because they're invariably going to tell their friends about it because this is an entertaining show. It's an entertainment show that is still entertaining. So they're going to tell their friends about it and we're going to have these different locuses. What's the plural of locus? Loci? Loci? We're going to have these different loci of studio listeners appear across the world and we're just going to grow out network effect study some graph theory i personally haven't and we will continue to ascend the ranks of prominent podcast entertainment shows you can follow me on instagram at malaychuk that's my last name at m-a-l-e-j-c-z-u-k tell your mom tell your sister you could tell your dad if you want also tell your brother if you want definitely tell your mom and your sister and I'll catch you next time. This is The Studio with Christoph Malachuk.